Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of our talk on CT protocol design and optimization. And I left off last time with a slide, what do you need to do in terms of looking at the studies? Axial CT obviously is always going to be there, but I think these days you must look at multiplanar coronals, with sagittals, and even obliques, but particularly coronal and sagittal. You could say, well, I look at the multiplanar if I have a question, but the truth is you miss so much by looking at the axial alone. Things that become obvious on coronal or sagittal are not so obvious when you look at the axials alone. We also think 3D is very valuable to the radiologist, but also to referring clinician. And even if it's 3D done with predefined protocols by the technologist, it's much better uh, than nothing. But interactive 3D, particularly when you have lots of experience doing things like cinematic rendering, it's hard to do better than that. There's no doubt, and we've said this for 35 years, information available from CT is far more than the information available on axial CTs only. We develop volume imaging, and we need to do volume visualization. Now, we've gone through lots of changes in computers and technology and algorithms, and we have separate talks about 3D imaging. But just to bring up one of the latest things is cinematic rendering. Initially, Crowe's developed some of the work by using this idea about multiple light sources. Remember, cinematic rendering is really volume rendering with multiple light sources, but it really enhances the reality of the images and a very nice editorial by Philippe Sierre makes that point. And Philippe says, preliminary work shows that cinematic rendering produces photorealistic images with enhanced detail by comparison with other 3D visualization tools. And it really is spectacular. So some examples. Here's a nice case. We're looking at tracheal stenosis. There's some thickening of the trachea. But look at the detail you can get of the neck, the soft tissues, and the vessels, the submandibular regions. Look at the vessels and muscles and nodes. And then I'm simply changing the angle and the rendering parameters by changing the various parameters in the trapezoids on cinematic rendering, we can show different things. So in this case, I'm showing you the leads on the chest wall and you see the pectoralis major muscle in this patient with chest pain. And then you have the muscle transparent, and now you see the heart behind the ribs and the sternum. And then we take the bone away, and now I'm looking at the chest, and I'm seeing that coronary artery fistula to the pulmonary artery. Look at the detail of the branch vessels off the arch. Look at the detail of that coronary artery fistula. Beautifully shown. I've now changed the uh, opacity. You can, again, it's the same volume, the same data set, but by changing parameters, look how much different you can make the images look and enhance the detail. Or in this patient who was being screened for coronary disease, the patient did have a history of IV drug abuse, there's an opaque density sitting in the right ventricle, which is a broken needle. You can see the right coronary artery looks good, but there's a needle from a broken needle, IV drug abuse. And here I'm taking it in cinematic. I'm showing you with the chambers, the LV opaque and the aorta opaque. And now I'm going to change it so you're looking in the chambers of the right ventricle and can see the patient's needle very nicely shown. Or in this case of a patient with a TAVR, the upper image with the opacity, you don't really see the TAVR, but in the lower image you see the TAVR, you see inside the left ventricle, you see inside the aorta. 
Again, same data set, it's simply how we render them. And again, here's just four renderings of that same patient showing you the TAVR, but showing it to you differently. And this we call black blood imaging, really nicely looking in the lumen. Another thing we can do, of course, is dual energy. Dual energy has many applications. Uh, real briefly, and we have lectures on dual energy, we're looking at the variability of K-edges, which form the basis for dual energy techniques. K-edge values vary for each element, which means you can separate, although they're both dense, looking at the scan, calcium from contrast, because calcium has a K-edge of 4 and iodine 33, because their atomic numbers are significantly different. And whether you do dual energy with dual source CT or single source CT, there are certain perhaps inherent advantages with dual source CT, but regardless, the principles are the same. You use two energy sources, and now we're getting down to like 80 and 150. The bigger the spread, the better the quality of the images. Potentially with dual energy, you could have lower dose or at least equivalent dose. You need less IV contrast in many cases. You can reduce certain artifacts, particularly off metal. And there's a whole range of processes you can do. So in this case, and this is my favorite app, most practical, automated bone removal. It's often hard to remove the bone in patients with arthritis or patients with lots of vascular calcification, but with dual energy, it's very doable. And here you can see very nicely the patient's extensive peripheral vascular disease involving the patient's SFA and popliteal arteries and runoff vessels. Or in this case, with a patient with vascular occlusion post-grafting, we don't see the left femoral artery. And here it is on the MIP imaging. You can see it well. You can see the occlusion of the left femoral artery. The SFA on the left side reconstitutes. Here it is with volume rendering, classic volume rendering, that is. Here's the volume rendering and the MIP side by side. And then we could go on to cinematic. But depending what you use, the information is easier to see in the volume than individual slices. Now, in this article talking about extremity trauma, we talk about how complicated injuries, where you're looking at bone and vessels and muscle, can all be combined into a single set of images. So whether it's dual energy removing the, the uh, bone in this case, that allows us to see the AV fistula very nicely by the popliteal artery. Or in this case, there's a femoral artery pseudoaneurysm present, and you very nicely see the femoral artery pseudoaneurysm, which initially was felt to be an abscess. Fortunately, we gave IV contrast. Here it is on volume rendering. You can see the relationship of the femoral and superficial femoral artery on the left to the pseudoaneurysm. Here it is with MIP on your left and volume rendering with bone removal on your right. But look at the cinematics. Now you see the mass. You can almost palpate it by looking at it. You see the induration, the prominent vessels. Then I make the muscle transparent. And now you can see the compression of the patient's femoral artery at the site of the pseudoaneurysm. And here I'm making the skin very white, but I'm cutting through. And here I'm taking everything away but the vessel and the pseudoaneurysm very nicely defined and you can plan the patient's surgical repair from these images. Now again with 3D imaging you always want to be careful particularly in the presence of calcification even with dual energy 
at times, particularly when vessels are small and calcifications are dense, it's easy to remove more than you want to. And what that typically can result in is when there's minimal flow or diminished flow in a vessel, you might call vessel occlusion. So here's a patient with extensive calcified plaque in the abdominal aorta, but it's patent. Then you see stents in the patient's common iliac arteries. And if I track down the right stent, you can see it's patent. Okay, no doubt about it. But on the volume rendering, I can't tell you patency of the stent because we're not looking in the stent. It looks like it's in good position and you see flow beyond it, but what about flow in it? And now I'm going down to MIP. Again, the same issues, but then I take the stent away with dual energy and it looks like the patient's common iliac artery in the right side is occluded. But I showed you it's not occluded. There's a stent there and this flow in the stent. The left side is stent, you can see, but the right, it looks like it's occluded. Okay, when you go back with the cinematic, now you can change the renderings to look inside the stents and see flow bilaterally, okay? So you wanna be very careful. One good rule is always look at the source data. Do not only rely on the 3Ds. The 3Ds usually are perfectly correct, but every once in a while, particularly with dense calcification or with stents in place, it's very easy for the rendering to overcall the extent of disease present. So that indeed becomes very, very important. But again, in terms of complications, dual energy helps remove the bony structures, which allows us to pick up and define the vascular pathology much better. Now, other things going on in radiology today is a big debate about 10 plates. Do you like them? Do you dislike them? It tends to be residents and fellows like them and senior attendings hate them. I think the people who like them and the reason they're being pushed is because of easier billing. The referring physicians, you know what they like? They like concise reports. You have one of these structured reports, they skip the first 20 pages and look at the conclusion. The key thing is your accuracy, not how you make the report look. It's one of those things where it's a bureaucratic push, but I think a lot of us are gonna be forced to do it. It's not that big a deal, quite frankly. I don't think it's really helpful and to me, we're consultants, we're not doing structured reporting. I do agree structured reporting is great in training, but even the trainees tend to at times not get it exactly right as well. Now, one of the things in terms of templates that can be valuable is when you're looking at certain diseases and you're trying to do multi-site trials. Uh, this was uh, a project between the Society of Abdominal Radiology and the American Pancreatic Association to come up with a template for reporting so that reports would look the same from institution to institution and you could use that for different trials better. One of the things that came out of this was that if you wanted to have a standardized imaging report template, you also needed to have standardized data acquisition. That if your data acquisition wasn't done correctly, it's dumb to worry about standardized reporting. Uh, it's very important so to have dual phase imaging, not single phase. It's very important to do 3D reconstructions. Again, this came out of that article. And they even said that if you don't do the study right the first time, you need to do it again. You need to have biphasic imaging for the pancreas. If not, you're gonna not have the accurate results. And this article is really good. It's probably a good model for other things. It spoke about the techniques you need to use. It was scanner agnostic. It turned and termed phases 
We like to be earlier than 40 seconds, but just a little bit. But again, Venus 65 to 70, it talks about image reconstruction. It talks about how you read arterial involvement and how you read venous involvement, how you look and stage extrapancreatic disease. So it became very, very important. Now, structured reporting is okay. To me, as I said, it's a billing issue. The thing that's really gonna change radiology and you need to be paying a lot of attention is going to be artificial intelligence. AI is gonna be big. It's gonna be every part of radiology from scheduling to reporting. It's gonna help us design the optimal protocols with the lowest dose, optimize contrast use, optimize interpretation, do better job quantifying uh, data. It's gonna be everywhere. It's gonna help us improve radiology by not only saying the patient has a pancreatic mass, but here's likely what the mass is. And if this is an adenocarcinoma, this looks like based on its um, radiomics that it will respond to full FOX or it will not respond. So there's so much more we're gonna gain, okay? So AI is gonna be big. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Another thing that kind of sits in between us is checklists. Now, I think checklists are a little different than structured reporting. I think checklists are more as a way of helping you, and particularly for residents and fellows, really, how do you think? If you had an expert thinking about something, if you ask Brooke Jeffrey, who always speaks about checklists for trauma, and you ask him what's on his checklist, he'll tell you all the things he missed in the past. So he looks at a trauma, he'll look at the things he missed, which are splenic bleeds, he'll look for hematomas in the mesentery, things like that. We developed the checklist and it's on the app store for pancreatic mass evaluation, how we analyze a pancreatic mass, answering some of these basic questions, which then leads you into another series of questions. Is the mass solid, cystic, solid or cystic? Does it have calcifications? And we work our way down to help you reach the best and most likely diagnosis. AI is gonna incorporate the equivalent of checklists. There's no doubt AI can do it well by going through these parameters with you or without you. Now we've spent over four years now on this Felix project with the Lust Garden Foundation. We've learned how to teach the computer to recognize all the various organs in the body with nearly 100% accuracy and their boundaries. We've then taught it to recognize the pancreas and to recognize what's a normal pancreas. We taught it to think about things like pancreatic duct dilatation and comic duct dilatation. Think about textural changes. Think about the areas radiologists miss, the uncinate and tail of pancreas. Think about how different tumors look and how we're able to understand the tumor. We've taught the computer how to change and check between things like autoimmune pancreatitis and normal and pancreatic adenocarcinoma with 20% better differentiating autoimmune pancreatitis from cancer than radiologists. So again, this becomes very, very important. High sensitivity and specificity. I think that's the thing that AI is bringing to the table and will bring it to the table even more over the coming years. I think it's very exciting. I've now gone through three parts of protocols. We've spoken about the use of oral contrast. We spoke about the use of IV contrast. We spoke about the protocoling, how we design phases, how you need to really have the right phases for the right patient, 
how we need to understand that it's not a one size fits all in terms of protocols and you need to be specific. I know we need throughput, but the best way to have good throughput is to have good protocols in place so the technologists know what to do with nearly every case. We talked about checklists that we used before several days. Patients come to the scanner so that when the patients come, they're not looking for a radiologist or they're a foreign clinician to figure out what's going on, that things are done correctly. So I think when you put all of it together, I think there's great opportunity for improving what we do, for constantly relearning what we do, and for customizing and implementing these changes. I won't say on a daily basis, but make sure a couple times a year you review everything you're doing and you're doing it correctly. Particularly in groups now, which are expanding, being able to maintain quality is a challenge. You don't know all the radiologists, you don't know all the people, you don't know the protocols. You don't want to have 100 protocols for looking at the pancreas. In this COVID era, where a lot of our pancreas protocols were done at remote institutions, which we don't know because patients couldn't travel, I would say 10% to 20% of the cases were done correctly. Even though we said pancreatic protocol, 80% of the hospitals had pancreatic protocols that I have no idea what they were. But I can tell you they were not very good and the results were not very good. So it's up to us. We're radiologists. We represent the patients and we need to take care of our patients and do things right every time, every day, 365, 24-7. And with that, to quote Don Henley, we're all learning. The more I know, the less I understand. All the things I thought I figured out, I have to learn again. I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but everything changes. And that's true with CT protocols. We change things, we improve things. So hopefully this will help you. And with that, I thank you for your attention. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.